I can always tell when a writer doesn't actually spend much time outside. I've read so many stories where the forest is described as quiet. Even in the middle of winter, quiet is not a thing that happens in forests very often. There's a constant symphony of bird calls, the rustling of small mammals through the undergrowth, the hum of insects, trees dropping leaves and branches, the wind sighing and groaning through the canopy. When I'm presented with a story referencing the silence of the woods, I know that the writer probably loves the idea of the forest rather than the reality of it. My best friend lives in Arizona. Like me, she's an avid hiker, so I've had the opportunity over the years to go hiking in the desert. Even there, silence is not a thing. It's quieter, certainly, but the shifting of sands, the crunch and slide of small creatures passing over and under the ground, and the whisper of the wind through the white sage, Palo Verde and Saguaro, still creates a tapestry of sound. There are probably a handful of places in the world where silence reigns, but I suspect they are quite difficult for humans to get to. I think part of why people consider forests quiet is the sounds there have to do with the bustle of activity we are not consciously a part of. Possibly also because those sounds cloak a world of actions that would make us uncomfortable. The beautiful bird song is generally either a bird declaring itself to be the sole owner of the tree it is on, actively yelling at passers-by to see if anyone wants to make some eggs, or sending up a warning that danger is near. Out where the sights and sounds are only tangentially related to our concerns, it's easy to assume they mean nothing, to consider the forests, deserts, and plains to be quiet, empty, or boring. We're willing to ignore a lot of activity simply because we think it doesn't pertain to us. I think it's interesting that in the face of staggering problems for humans, many people are naturally gravitating toward the world of feather, leaf, and vine. More and more people are going hiking or spending time outside. They are probably discovering the same thing I have. The activities of the wild world may not center on us, but they are still important. And the act of observing the natural world, spending time thinking rather than doing can reveal something else. We were wrong about the internal quiet too. Almost everyone I know is struggling. Stress brings out the shadows and we are finally noticing their presence. Maybe we missed it before because we assumed the occasional tumult within was like the bird song outside, irrelevant. As an extrovert deeply rooted in community, this time of physical separation has taken an extraordinary toll on my mind. The system I had previously used to keep my mental health stable proved ineffective against a prolonged separation from those I love. I am rebuilding and discovering new support mechanisms, finding my new normal. One of the most important support tools is trail time. I live a little further afield, so the trails in my area are not as popular or crowded as the ones near Frederick. Prior to the pandemic, I did go hiking. I've always loved being outside, but it was a weekly activity rather than a daily one. Now, if I want to be able to function, I need to go walking every day. Part of me rails against it. I'm investing a lot of time in the trails, and I do not have a body of work to show for that investment. 
other than spending the day upright rather than hiding underneath a pile of blankets. I feel like I'm doing nothing. My family prizes activity, and we as a group tend to be chronically overscheduled. I'm starting to wonder if I actually had my mental health stable before the pause, or if I was just so busy I could conveniently ignore it. A month or so ago, my stepdaughter was over having dinner with us, and we heard a cacophony of birdsong suddenly rise. A few houses down on top of a telephone pole, a crow found a nest of baby birds. Perfectly outlined against the sky, what followed was difficult to watch. My stepdaughter was understandably horrified, but I know it is simply the way of things. The Disney version of nature sometimes leaves people unprepared for the reality of it. We noticed the tumult and drama of life and death playing out because we were having a leisurely dinner outside. We were not buried in work, focused on our phones, or otherwise operating from a place of distraction. As without, so within. When we are simply present with ourselves, larger patterns can finally surface to be recognized. The bird song sounding the alarm can be heard. Just as the quiet woods is a misnomer, the phrase doing nothing is misleading as well. My hours on the trail produce no tangible reward. They're not useful in any capitalist sense of the word. And yet, there is a strange kind of healing and stability through these slower, less monetarily based ways of connecting. As a community, I think we are learning that doing nothing isn't a failure of character or a misuse of time. Sitting in the garden or under the trees, we are witness to the mad symphony of life around us. The normality of nature is the beauty of plants growing. It's also the brutality of pet predators preying on the weak. It's knowing the rich scent of good earth requires the death of living things. It's knowing that the silent woods isn't. We're learning that doing nothing isn't either. We are discovering more about the soil where we have grown roots. We are finally noticing the forest around us and figuring out new ways to get the nutrients we need. We are doing some much needed pruning and tending. And all of that looks like nothing from the outside. But just like the bird song we usually ignore, there's actually a lot going on. What do you think of when you hear the word natural? I'll show you a few slides along those lines to prompt our reflections. When you hear the word natural, maybe you think of a hidden waterfall in the middle of a wilderness or a peaceful grove of trees. Or maybe you think of a wide open vista. What comes to mind for you when you think of natural? But as Mary and Irene have already started to um, point us toward, it's not just these peaceful, wonderful, beautiful cupcakes and unicorn scenes that are natural. Of course, cupcakes are natural. Earthquake, I mean, uh, hurricanes are natural, right? Earthquakes, natural. 
COVID-19. Natural. So, on the one hand, of course we know all that to be true. On the other hand, there's a lot of confusing propaganda and manipulative language and imagery swirling all around words like natural, trying to get us to buy stuff and think of certain ways. So I want to invite us to spend just a few minutes this morning equipping ourselves to more easily notice when seemingly innocent words such as natural and unnatural are deployed in deceptive ways. Um, a false dichotomy, a, a rigid binary, often gets set up between natural and unnatural, in which natural is used to mean all things healthy, true, pure, honest, authentic, simple, and real, and leaving unnatural to be synonymous with all things unhealthy, false, and impure. But the truth, as is often the case, is more complicated, messy, and complex. If the sermon leaves you curious to learn more, I recommend a book titled Natural, How Faith in Nature's Goodness Leads to Harmful Fads, Unjust Laws, and Flawed Science. It's by a religion professor named Alan Levinovitz, and it was published recently by our own Beacon Press, this owned by the Unitarian Universalist Association. Significantly, this insight is not new. Uh, to cite a famous example from the 19th century, the philosopher John Stuart Mill wrote that nature, natural, and the group of words derived from them are one of the most copious sources of false taste, false philosophy, false morality, and even bad laws. Indeed, if you look at a list of common logical fallacies, you will usually find appeal to nature listed. Just because something is allegedly natural does not mean that it should win the argument. Historically, for instance, this isn't just about like keeping you from being deceived by advertising. Oh, I should buy that because it has a natural bucolic image on it. This stuff really matters. Think of all the times that appeals to nature have been used to perpetuate systems of oppression. Generations of women were told that they were naturally inferior to men. In a classic case of victim blaming, misogynists down through the ages have said, you know, it's not that we want women to be second-class citizens, it's just the way nature intended things to be. So you set up an unequal playing field designed to keep the patriarchy entrenched, and when that sexist system results in men outperforming women, you say, well, I guess that's just the way nature intended things to be. Let's see what you did there. We could deconstruct a similar dynamic with white supremacy and mass incarceration that I mentioned earlier. You know, we set up a racially biased system and then say, well, I, I guess it's just the way nature intended to end up with far more African-Americans imprisoned than white people. Or we can unpack around white supremacy and eugenics or around the absurd arguments that interracial marriage is unnatural when the truth is that race is a social construction in the first place, not a biological reality. If you scratch below the surface of these and many other appeals to what is allegedly natural, what is allegedly normal, you will uncover that what's really going on is that one group is trying to impose their biases on an entire society, typically to 
entrench or maintain their power. So they're trying to mask their sexism, their racism, homophobia, classism, ableism as being simply, it's just what's natural, it's just what's normal. No, it's how we've created things to be and it should change. Now here's the thing. For most socially progressive people, that's all 101 level relatively easy unpacking of this false binary of natural, unnatural, normal, abnormal. So let me take the risk of turning the dial up a notch. We're about to wade into some somewhat turbulent waters, so let me reassure you up front that it's, this is not about me coming down definitively on one side or the other of the debates I'm about to name. Indeed, not doing that is really my point. But I do want to invite you to notice in each case how words like natural and unnatural are being used, how they're being aggressively deployed often, and how that act of noticing that can open us up to a larger spectrum of possibilities, how it can really help us be more free. Consider, for instance, the case of GMOs, uh, genetically modified food in particular, sometimes disparaged as, that's frankenfood, we shouldn't eat any of that. The more interesting question I would invite you to consider is not whether food per se is just natural or unnatural, but what has science shown us regarding whether it is healthy or unhealthy, as well as how some genetic modifications can be hugely transformative in feeding more people, reducing hunger and malnutrition. Or here's another controversial one, the whole debate about natural childbirth. I can feel myself saying like, who take a deep breath. <laughs> We're gonna get through this, I promise. I, I've witnessed so many heated debates in this whole area. People have strong feelings about this stuff and understandably so. But let's zoom out. I think most people would grant if we do that the truth is somewhere in the messy middle. Consider this. If you or someone you love is near to giving birth in a technologically developed country, the standard birthing process may well tend toward being overly medicalized, which may well worth be pushing back against. And I've talked to many people who have had to push back strongly to create the birthing environment that was right for them. But if you or someone you love is near giving birth in a less technologically developed country with a very high infant and maternal mortality rate, advocating for more access to more medicalized so-called unnatural births might be in order. Let's make room for that too. Part of what I'm inviting us to do is to avoid overly romanticizing what is natural or too quickly assuming there is one normal that is right for all people and all times and all places. In the words of Dr. Levinovitz, the author of the book Natural that I mentioned earlier, he says, natural is not synonymous with beautiful, healthy, good, or true. And once freed from this, understanding of nature, it becomes possible, for instance, to discuss the potential benefits of natural childbirth, and there are many, without evangelizing rigid obedience to nature. It also becomes possible to state clearly the benefits of unnatural childbirth, and there are many, without being labeled a heretic. Then a new space can open up where nature can be seen for what nature really is, 
one among many potential sources of knowledge and value, not the only source of knowledge and value, and that nature differs in importance from culture to culture and from person to person. So many of these issues, they are not problems to be solved. It's a problem we just give one solution for all times and places. Instead, they are polarities to be managed, with most people finding themselves at different points on the spectrum in different seasons of their lives. A similar sort of confusion can be at play in the anti-vaccine movement. Oh, speaking of controversial topics, I'm going to bring up this morning. I've spoken at length about this topic in the past, so for now, I'll limit myself to saying that I hope my larger point is clear, that sometimes what is natural is the disease that can kill us, and what is unnatural is the science that can sometimes save our lives. Or to give a personal example, each evening before going to bed, I take a medication called Synthroid. It's literally an unnatural um, synthetic substitute for human thyroid hormone since I had half of my thyroid removed. Neither surgery nor synthetic hormones are particularly natural, but I'm very grateful for both of them because the, the only alternative were like letting nature take its course, I wouldn't be here. And here's the larger point again. Once we begin to really appreciate that nature natural isn't always good and unnatural isn't always bad, we are less susceptible to manipulative advertising and we can be more free to explore all the possible options along the spectrum and make the choice that is right for us individually and collectively according to the best information available to us at the time. And crucially, we can allow others that same freedom, which may include making different decisions than the ones that are right for us. Dr. Levinson expresses this paradox of our human situation this way. Never say never. Never say always. No foundational principles of nature's laws predetermine our position. The default is uncertainty, ambiguity, and openness to complexity and change. Now, I will readily confess that there are times I would prefer certitude. But more often than not, rigid certitude, that lands us in the realm of orthodoxy and of fundamentalism. We may not always like, I may not always like uncertainty and ambiguity and openness to complexity and change, but they are for better or worse. Very, you, you. We are a big tent with room for a diversity of choices and a wide range of what is considered normal. So as I move toward my conclusion, I do want to bring up one other book that I finally made time to read in these very natural days of the pandemic. What could be more natural than a virus? The book I want to bring up is titled How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell, an artist and writer who teaches at Stanford University. I found her book really helpful as a touchstone in this new normal in which we find ourselves. To adapt the framework we've been playing with, what's natural might be letting the virus have its way with us, since physical distancing and wearing masks does not feel natural to most of us. It feels quite unnatural. So how might we best respond for an odd time such as this? Odell's subtitle is Resisting the Attention Economy. 
It gives us one indication of what her book is about. She invites us to notice the ways that social media and related platforms, they are designed to be addictive. They're specifically trying to manipulate our human psychological tendencies and hook us into returning to their platforms as frequently as possible and for as long as possible so they can sell our attention to advertisers and increase their profits. That's the attention economy. Your attention is the product. And I've had a lot of conversations with many of you over the past few months about your struggles to resist the lure of too much social media or too much news. So what about that title of Odell's book, How to Do Nothing? Is the answer just to not do anything? Odell writes that the first half of doing nothing is about disengaging more from the intention economy, things like taking those daily walks that Irene mentioned or whatever you know works for you. The other half is about re-engaging with something else. What is that other half for you? We're now three months into physical distancing, but the pandemic appears to be far from over. So I invite you to take a little bit of time here in the middle of the summer. Looking back over the past three months, be honest with yourself. What's been working for you and what hasn't? What do you feel led to experiment with in the coming months of the pandemic? What shift do you want to make in your new normal? What wants to emerge in your life? What do you feel led to do, to join, to create, to re-engage with as we continue to reflect on this crisis and what it might unexpectedly make possible for us individually and collectively? As we continue to reflect on that, let's sing together that old Shaker song, Tis a Gift to be Simple.